Okay, good morning, everyone. As always, our uh, learning this morning is dedicated We are still in the Nesiv Shalom's uh, introduction, his opening to his uh, Prakam of Amuna, to his section on Amuna. Come on in, there are more chairs. There's more chairs already back here. Um, we're on page Memdalad Oshei, and uh, again, I know I say this every single week to begin. I say this every single week to begin our uh, class, but um, even if we learn nothing new, and I hope we do um, share some new ideas, but even if we learn nothing new, there's value in getting together every week and simply remembering what we already know. You know, just like eating right and just like exercising and just like interpersonal relationships and just like so many of the foundations of marriage and parenting, it's not uh, rocket science, it's not uh, brain surgery, it's not major breakthroughs, but it's remembering what you already know. The essence of the Ramchal, Ramchal writes in his introduction to Mesila Sisharim. says, uh, don't buy my book unless you're going to read it many times. If you're going to read it once and put it on the shelf to gather dust, don't bother reading it even once. Because its only value is in being mindful, mindful, mindful. Amuna is an, a, a challenge of mindfulness. It's easy to be mindless in a world in which um, we're filled with stress and tension and anxiety and worry. It's very easy to, uh, to leave God out of the equation. So really the essence of why we get together is a support group to reinforce our amuna. We're a workout group. We're working our spiritual amuna muscle. And we find the text to be the excuse to get together, but really it's just to simply talk about amuna, to remember to see Hashem in our lives. So we're in Oshei, page Mem Dalad. The depth and the greatness of the inner essence of what it means to live life with faith. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidus, we spoke about him recently when we did the uh, Gra in the Great Rivalries course, the Gra versus the Baal Shem Tov. His whole history and his upbringing and his life. So the Baal Shem Tov said the following, This was the instruction that the Baal Shem Tov, the founder, the father of Hasidus, gave to his students. Penny, can you grab one? Yes. I think two more back here. All that really exists in the entire world, all that really exists is the Or Ein Sof, which is a Kabbalistic way of saying the endless light, which is the Almighty. I don't know what it means. I'm not, even though I've come of age to learn Kabbalah, I still have not learned Kabbalah. But uh, the Or Ein Sof Baruch Hu, that all that exists, we think you exist and this table exists and this cup of coffee exists and the balloon exists and the roof exists. And the, we think that there's a lot of things that exist. Oh, and among the things that exist, Miami Dolphins exist and the car exists and the stock market exists. Oh, and among the many things, there's God. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, and there's also God. And what the Baal Shem Tov would reinforce to his students all the time is no. The only thing that exists, all that exists, is God. God constricts himself, he restricts himself, he, he does, he's mitzantzim himself, so that he makes room for other things to appear, to give the illusion as if they exist. So it's a world in which we develop a relationship with him based on the illusions of this world. Now, that sounds a little, you know, out there. What do you mean the illusion? You know, the food you eat is going to put, you know... Weight on your hips. The, the, it's not an illusion. There's no, there's no illusion. There's no illusion. You read the red light, run the red light, you're going to crash into another car. You don't uh, take care of yourself, you're going to get sick. These things aren't illusions. 
So what do I mean by it's an illusion? From our perspective, the illusion looks real. And God put us into this matrix, this illusory world, because it's all a platform to come close to, to connect with Him. We've spoken about before. The whole imagery of parents and children, of a husband and a wife, of a boss and an employee, each of these is a metaphor for a way that we can relate to God. So God created a world and a lifestyle that involves these things. Why did God create a world with food? You know, God created, could have made us like robots. Maybe we should just plug ourselves into an outlet every night. Why do I have to eat? Why did He create a world with food and appetite and hunger and desire and, and eating and taste and taste buds? Why did He create all of that? The answer is very simple. Because He wanted us to struggle with appetite and show self-control and discipline because that's godliness. That's godliness. So, People think that God created the world and then He said, okay, now I have a world. There's men, there's women, there's temptation, there's food, there's work that needs to be done, there's this, there's that, the other. I got to come up with a rule book. How are people going to know how to operate? I need a manual for operating in this world. So people think, well, God created the world and then after he created the world, he wrote the manual called the Torah and he gave it to us. But it's the opposite. Histaka ba'oraisa uboreyama. First he wrote a manual and he said, hmm, what are the values? I'm creating this, this little creation called man. I'm going to put them into a world where they think everything that they're doing is real and I'm doing that just so that they will make choices. The only thing real in their world are the choices they make. That's the only thing that's real, that's lasting, that's immortal, that's eternal. Everything is an illusion, everything is from God, everything is manipulated from upstairs. The only thing that's real, the only thing that's lasting, are the choices we make about how to operate within that illusory world. So God says, I'm putting you in a world, you know, there's, I'm, I'm, I don't even know the names of these, but there's like online games where a person thinks they're living in a world, you make your character and then you live in the world. Anyone know any of these games, what they're called? I don't know. Face your kids. I need some uh, teenagers in here. I forgot what these games are called. No, but they're, they're like online. What's it called? But not only virtual reality. There's online games where you're in a world and you make a character that looks a certain way and then you interact within that world. Minecraft. Okay, I don't even know what these games are. Minecraft. That, that's what we are in. God's playing one big game of Minecraft. Right? So he's got a world. It's on a screen. He's designed it. He's made us his characters in that world. The characters move around, do things, interact, eat, converse, engage. They think they're experiencing real experiences, but it's all part of a game. It's all on a screen. It's all in the imagination of the creator. And that's us for, for God. The only thing, the difference is that in our game, we also make the choices for the character. Whereas God set up a whole game and then he pulled back and he said, okay, characters, now I've given you this gift called free will. I'm not making the choices for you. You make the choices yourself. And those choices are what last. They're, what, they're what's meaningful. They are what's real. But if you look at a character on a game, on a screen, what's real? The only thing that's real about everything on that screen is the person who's holding the device in their hand. The person holding the joystick or the keyboard or the mouse or the, or the phone or the iPad. That's the only thing that's real. Everything on the screen is just an illusion. It's all there as a platform for the character to think they're making choices. So all that really exists in this world, it's not that you exist and I exist, the table exists, the chair exists, the car exists, the coffee exists. Oh yeah, and also God exists. All that exists, the only thing that exists, is the Almighty is the Rabboni Shalom. But in His existence, He made room for us, 
and he made room for us to feel like we exist, and he made room for us to make choices which are the only real thing that we do. Anyone remember the movie The Matrix? Yes. So, The Matrix is an incredible illustration of the Jewish philosophy of what this world is really all about. In The Matrix, the people in The Matrix think they're living a real life. Right? And they could take a pill and wake up to the fact that their real life is not a real life, that they're all just part of a matrix. That, that's the way this world is an illusion. It's temporary. It's just here as a means for us to make choices, but really it's part of God's big matrix. The only thing that's real in this world are the choices we make. So that's what the, the Baal Shem Tov would, would constantly emphasize to his students, to his Hasidim, is that kol ha'ulam kulo rak or ein sof baruchu. The entire world looks like it's filled with things and people, but really it's all just in God's imagination. It's really all just, God is all that exists. Just that in His imagination, He gave us the keys to free will so that we can have a relationship with, with Him. Sorry, this is the meaning of these verses. It says, There is nothing but God. We've talked about it numerous times. So the Briskorov said, whenever you're feeling anxious, whenever you're feeling a crisis, whenever you're feeling urgency, whenever you're feeling worry or fear or you're in a situation that you're nervous about, there's a great value, I don't want to use the word skula, I hate that word because it's really a tefillah, to just repeat over and over again, ain od milvado. Ain od, you're on the plane, there's a lot of turbulence, you grab in the armrest, you're not sure what's going to be, ain od milvado. You're in traffic, you're late to the appointment, so much is going to go down. It's a meditation mantra to calm your nerves. You're not sure what's going to be. You're trying to get in touch with someone. They're not answering. Is everything okay? What's going to be? Ain od milvado. Ain od milvado. Ain od milvado. Another pasuk. God says, the heavens and the earth, I fill. Hem kipshuta mamish. Said the Baal Shem Tov. You have to understand these verses as they appear literally. She'ein l'cha b'chomasa b'chol dibor b'chol hirer. She'ein etzem ha'elokus mistater u'mitztatem bo. There is no action. There's no speech. There's no thought that God is disconnected from. This is a haunting thought, but you know that God knows everything, not only that you do, and not only that you say, but that you think. He knows what's going on in our heart. He knows our desire, He knows our temptation, He knows our thought, He knows everything. That's like saying that there could be a character in, what's the game called? Mind sweep? Mind space? Minecraft. There could be a character in Minecraft where the person holding the keyboard or mouse doesn't really know what they're doing. You'd laugh if I told you that. Oh, no, the, one, the character on the screen has his own life now. You watching the screen, they could go hide in the corner of the room and do something and you wouldn't know. It's a joke. Of course you know. What do you mean? It's your game. You made the game. You made the character. You're watching the game. You're operating the game. They can't do anything without you knowing. So it's the same thing. It's all, Hashem created all these things as a metaphor for us to better understand the way that we are connecting with Him. A person who looks with the eye of their, of their thought, of their thinking, on everything opposite their eyes, the inner essence of it, Adkan. This is what the Baal Shem Tov would tell his students. This is what the Baal Shem Tov would tell his Chassidim. It's not you and me and this and that and God. All that exists is God. God is behind. God is continuing to will the existence of everything. If the sun came up this morning and continues to shine and provides warmth and energy and light, 
It's because God is willing the sun. If whatever exists, if your car started this morning, God willed it to start. Yechavah's car did not start on Sunday. It's because God willed its battery to die. Whatever exists is God's willing it to exist. It's not that God invented the car and made Honda and Honda made the battery and now he went on to another project and now if the battery died, it has nothing to do with him. If the car started, it has nothing to do with him. No, he doesn't make projects and move on. God is behind every ant and every worm, behind every wind, behind every leaf, behind every car that starts, every everything. It's all the Ribbono Shel Olam. It's all the Ribbono Shel Olam. Adkan. It's all the Ribbono Shel Olam. This was, did we speak about this last week? I spoke about it on Shabbos. That this was Yosef. Yosef is called Hatzadik. Why is Yosef called Hatzadik? Yosef is called Hatzadik because while God spoke directly to the Avos, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov merited a prophecy. God spoke to them. At junctures in their life, he reassured them. He mandated, he gave them direction. He gave them a charge. Yosef begins the era of silence. You don't find in Chumash God talking to Yosef. And yet Yosef not only believes in God as much as his forefathers, Yosef talks about God even more. In this week's parsha, the reveals the big reveal. Spoiler alert, Yosef's going to reveal himself to his brothers in this week's parsha. So in the big reveal, when Yosef reveals himself to his brothers in this week's parsha, he sees the look of fear in their face. They, uh-oh, we're dead. And he says to them, he says to them, what? What? Oh yeah. He says to them, you have nothing to worry about. He says, don't worry. God put me here, not you. You think you're such hot shots that you could have orchestrated things for me to be the viceroy of Egypt? This is all part of God's master plan. He sent me down here ahead of you so I would be able to direct provisions to you to keep our family and our collective mission alive. So Yosef is hatzadik because while the other avos, God spoke to them directly, Yosef has to find God in the world, see God in his life. And he talks about God more than everyone else. He's Hatzadik. Yechavetz reminding me this coming Shabbos morning. Following davening, we are doing a uh, fantastic trial. We have a prosecution and defense, defense attorneys. The whole shul is the jury. We have a judge, uh, the gavel and the robe. And uh, we're having witnesses will be called. And we're doing a little mock trial of Yosef and the brothers. All based on the Mephorshim and with great respect for our Shvatim. But to bring the story alive. I also want to remind you, Friday night... We have an incredible opportunity. This Shabbos, uh, the Beis Medrash, Dr. Yitzchak Belazan Beis Medrash of BRS, is bringing Rabbi and Rebetzin Neuberger. Rabbi and Rebetzin Neuberger are a Rabbi and Rebetzin in Bergenfield, New Jersey, incredibly popular, of a very fast-growing shul. And uh, Rabbi Neuberger is a Rosh Hashiva at University. They're both uh, phenomenal, incredible role models, people, speakers. So Rebetzin Neuberger is doing an Oneg for Women Friday night at the Rossman Home in Captiva, and she'll be delivering a talk to women. Everyone is encouraged. Many times men are leaving Friday night to go to all these chaburas, so men have to stay home this Friday night and do the dishes and put everyone to bed and clean up. And The women are invited out for an oneg and a, a shear with Rebbe Tzenuberger. Look for the time in the, in the weekly. So, Ba'ashem Tev Hotel, Enod Mavadel. There is nothing else. Yosef understood. Whatever was happening in his life wasn't chance, wasn't coincidence. He saw in every time the wind blew, it was the Ribbono Shalom. As it says in You, Hashem, sustain everything. You sustain everything and everyone. It wouldn't exist without you. And at the moment that God stops willing the existence of whatever it is, whenever God withdraws, what happens when you're playing Minecraft 
and you decide, you know what, I got to get to sleep, I got to go eat something, I got to go to school, and you say, I'm going to pause the game or turn it off. Does the game continue to operate? No. When the operator of the game pauses the game or turns off the iPad, the game is over. It all depends on the operator of the game. So the character in the game thinks that they're their own character, think they can go hide in a corner of a room within the game, but the operator of the game designed the game, sees everything, knows everything, controls everything, manipulates everything, and when they decide, game over, it's time to turn it off. They turn it off. You, Hashem, are the operator of this game called life. When God says, I'm pausing the game, I'm turning it off, poof, everything disappears. Everything is gone. He's going according to his opinion. The Baal Shem Tov had a very strong opinion about the following. It's not at all a universal opinion. But it was his opinion. The Svir like Yeshitas Arishonim, the Baal Shem embraced the opinion among Arishonim. Shekasva Dashkacha Pratis he akol hanevraim afilu kisheinu nogeya levnei adam vafilu ad somchem vidom. Our house phone never ever rings except nine o'clock Wednesday mornings. <laughs> Literally, it's the only time of the entire week that it rings. I'm not really sure why. So, but it's Ashkacha Pratis. Hashem has told some call telemarketer Wednesday morning is the time. So what was the Baal Shem Tov's extreme opinion? The question is, when we say there's Hashkach pratis, when we say there's divine providence, that God is the controller, He knows everything that's going on, does He control everything? Or is He involved with human beings' lives, but the rest of the world is nature and the natural order that He set in motion? What I mean, let's keep going back to our example of Minecraft. So, it's possible that I wrote a program and I launched the app on my, on my iPad and now I'm controlling my character, I'm controlling certain external things that happen to the character, but kind of the background scenery and, and is it light, is it dark, is there an animal that runs across, is the grass tall, is it short, that's programmed into the program of the app. At every minute that I'm playing the game, I'm not also supervising and operating the blade of grass and the light and the backdrop and, the, and so on. That's programmed. And once I press play on the program, that part's now in motion. And the only part that I'm operating and supervising and have providence over is the character. Or do you say, no, I set up the whole thing, but I didn't set it in motion. I'm interacting with every pixel, with every iota, with every detail in the game at every moment that the game is on. So this is a big debate between the Rishonim about God's interaction with our world. The Rambam, Maimonides, believes, believed, believes, that God only has direct, individual, personalized providence over the human species. But over the natural world and the animal kingdom, there's what the Rambam calls Hashkacha Klolis. There is a broad category. So God says cats generally do this, dogs generally do this, animals generally do this, Plants generally do that. Mango trees generally do this. He pressed play, and now you go. So if a particular mango lasts on the tree till it fully ripens versus it falls off early and rots next to the tree, 
That's not God's providence. God's got better things to do. He set in motion the natural order with the natural law, and it depends on the shade and the rain and the sunlight and the season and, and the health of the tree and the toxins. And, the, and he pressed that all in place six, you know, 5,777 years ago when he launched the world. And he's busy in the meantime. He's got enough to do looking after the human world. That was the Rambam's feeling. Individual animals, whether this ant gets stepped on by you or you stepped around it and it continued to live its wonderful life, that's not God's providence. God somehow evaluated and judged the ant and decided the ant's future, destiny. That's just chance, randomness. That's the natural order. That's the Rambam's opinion. Now, the Rambam's books were burnt. Last night, actually, in our great rivalries, Rabbi Blumenthal gave a talk about the Rambam versus his rivals. You'll be able to listen to it online, and you should, because to us, the Rambam is one of the giants of Judaism. The Rambam, to us, is like an untouchable. He's the Rambam. But in the Rambam's time, and afterwards, his books were burned. Mara Rutenberg wrote a kina that we say, um, Tishabov, where the Talmud was burned in Paris, France, and he came to the conclusion that this was divine punishment for the fact that they had burnt the books of the Rambam and they gave a big collective apology to the Rambam. The history is, is fascinating. But particularly among Hasidim, they saw this perspective of the Rambam as a form of heresy, to the point that there are major Hasidic Shisfarim who say, this is not me, so lightning shouldn't strike me, but that the Rambam, because he had this opinion, came back as a Gilgal of a worm. That the Rambam, in order to earn a tikkun, for the Rambam to be forgiven, for having this heretical view of God's providence over animals and nature, the Rambam was reincarnated as a worm. That was the only way he could be forgiven. I'm not saying that. I'm quoting others who, uh, who say that. So, so there are Rishonim who say, like the Rambam, that God offers unique, individualized, personal providence to us. So we, the human being, all that happens to us in our lives is ein od milvado. That's God. But you know what? If the leaf falls off the tree, if the mango ripened and made it, if the ant gets stepped on, that, that's God set things in motion and he's, he's busy with other things. That's the Rambam. The Baal Shem Tov, and this is what the Slam Rebbe is saying, the Baal Shem Tov was adamant, was vehement in opposition to that position. He believed no. God is involved. We're on the second line on page Memhe now. There is nothing. There is absolutely there is nothing that God is not directly involved with. And the righteous representatives of truth used to reiterate in his name. Who speaks Yiddish here? Asra gets sich nit kein rear fun ort on hashkacha protis. Does not move from oh. place. Without God wanting it to. Baruch Hashem, shkoyach. V'priya aretz isa. When I was dating Yochevet, on her resume it said she spoke Yiddish, but it turns out she didn't, so. I was very, uh, very, very disappointed. Very disappointed. Anyway, we're still, we're still working that out. V'priya aretz isa b'zeh alashem. Our tradition says in Priha Aretz, we have this tradition, that there's no person, you, you can't move your finger, no blade of grass dries up, no pebble is kicked or moved from its place without divine consent. 
ואין שם תנועה גדולה וקטנה מן הצמצום הראשון עד שאף על המדרגו שבארץ, ותחס לארץ הכל מאיתו יסבורך, כפי חכמסו בשמור לכבודו, לגלוס אל כוסו וחכמסו מדסו יסבורך חנון ורחום. Nothing, nothing happens in this world. This was the Bashem, this is the Breslov opinion. If you read the Garden of Amun and the Garden of Peace and all the gardens of Rav Arush, this is the, the, the position of the, uh, the Breslovers. Again, it's not, nobody should think that this is uh, unanimous. The Rambam and others said, no, Hashkach HaPratis is a little more nuanced. It's not so simple. This is kind of the extreme position where ev- everything, everything that happens, everything that happens is the will of the Almighty. And one should see in everything that happens the will of the Almighty. I mentioned yesterday in the Parsha class that when Yosef turns to the brothers and he says to them, hey guys, relax, have a drink, L'chaim, relax, I'm not going to kill you, you're good to go, because this was God's will. God wanted me down here in Egypt. Do you think you're so great? I believe in God. And I don't believe I could be here unless God wanted me here. And you were a pawn, you were a tool, you orchestrated it, you were used to get me down here but don't, don't think for a moment, I don't realize that I only got down here because God wants me down. First of all, it's astounding that Yosef had the character, the strength to be able to say that, to feel that, to do that. And Yosef's relationship with his brothers is very complicated. I've quoted the Rebbeinu Bachi in the past that says that Yosef never really ever fully reconciles with the brothers. The brothers never fully really apologize as sincerely as they should. And the way they leave things at the end of Parshas Vayechi, Sefer Brishas closes, and it's not all happy and joyful and wonderful as the curtain falls. It is somewhat mixed because, you know, after their father dies, what do they do? They come over to Yosef and they say, you know, Dad, we forgot to tell you, Dad had a message for you. Before he died, he asked us to tell you, what was it? Don't, don't kill us. And Yosef, could you imagine how heartbroken Yosef is? How harp, all he's ever wanted to do is be accepted by his brothers. All he's ever wanted is to be one of his brothers, the same as his brothers. That's all he's ever wanted. He hasn't necessarily contributed to that happening, but that's all he's ever wanted. And instead, his brothers throw him in the pit, sell him into slavery. He's in Egypt. Now he's in, he's, he's in the top position. They need him. And he orchestrates things, and he is so magnanimous. How gracious could you be that when he reveals himself, he doesn't say, it's payday. You guys own me. I'm going to torture you a little bit. But he says, you know what, guys, it's all good. This was God. I love you. We're good to go. And still, he's living all these new years in Egypt thinking, okay, we've reconciled. We're close. Now we're good. Look how forgiving I was. Look how flexible I was. And when Yaakov dies, they come and they they say, oh, we have this message showing that they never fully reconciled, that they're still living in fear. And the story didn't end because we commemorate every Yom Kippur and every Tisha B'Av. We read it in the Slichos on Yom Kippur morning. And we read it in the Kinos on Tisha B'av, the story of the Asara Haruge Malchus, the ten martyrs who the Romans murdered, our ten greatest rabbis who were, who were murdered. by the, they, were not, they didn't live contemporaneous to one another, but yet Chazal linked them together. And, and the Medrash Eicha says, why did they die? There was a tribunal, a heavenly tribunal, that says the ten brothers were never held accountable for what they did to Yosef. And these ten rabbis paid the price on behalf of the brothers. So you see that this was not a closed issue. So what happened? I thought Yosef said that it wasn't the brothers, it was God. Why did the Hasari of Rugei Malchus have to die? If Yosef said, hey, we're all good, this wasn't you, this was God, God wanted me to be here, what's going on? And the answer, I think, is that there's a difference between holding someone accountable and taking revenge against them. 
There's an enormous difference between holding someone accountable. You know, if, if you steal from me, if I'm a victim of Madoff, I don't say, well, clearly God wanted this, so I'm not going to try to recover the money. I, you know, Bernie, come, come to Kiddush, come to have a Lachayim at my house, come to Shul. This wasn't you. God used you to wipe my savings out. That's absurd. We have a system of halacha, we have Chosh and Mishpat, we have Beisdin, we have an entire system to hold people accountable. You stole from me, you're going to be accountable. You ram your car into my car, and my car now doesn't work. I'm allowed to take you to Beisdin and recover the damages to my car. We have halacha. That enables me to hold you accountable. But that's different than wanting to take revenge. The Torah says, Lo velositor. You may not ever seek or take revenge. You can hold someone accountable, that's part of law. But you can't take revenge. And the Sefer HaChinuch writes, why can't you take revenge? God takes revenge. Let's leave that out for now. The Torah constantly calls God a vengeful God and He takes revenge. And we ask God every Shabbos and Avaracham, may you take revenge against our enemies. Okay, it complicates things a little bit, but let's leave that out for now. But we're not allowed to take revenge. Lo sikom velositor. Someone didn't invite you to their simcha, or someone invited you and only served you chicken, even though you served them meat when you had them for lunch. Somebody led, sat you near the door, you sat them near the band, so all the cheshbonos that everybody's constantly keeping. Why are you not allowed to take revenge? Lo sikom velositor. Sefer HaChinuch says something incredible. Because when you take revenge, what are you saying? You're denying God. You're saying that, yeah, God had nothing to do with this mm-hmm. result that happened to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take revenge and wipe you out because you did this to me. And the answer is no. What happened to you could not have happened without God being okay with it. He also is okay with your holding the other person accountable. So you wouldn't have been in that car accident if God didn't say, for whatever reason and whatever you needed to experience that and whatever you needed to learn from that, that you needed to be in that car accident. You can't take revenge because God would not have allowed the car accident unless he was okay with the car accident. You can't take revenge. You could go recover the money. You could hold the person accountable for the damages they did to your car, but you can't take revenge because you can't knock God out of the equation. You know, as, as a rabbi, you get incredible kavod and satisfaction and fulfillment, and it's an incredible job. And occasionally you get a little agmas nefesh. And one of the pieces of agmas nefesh is sometimes people will speak a little lashon har about you, you hear they're talking about you, and so on, occasionally. So I, I, was, I was learning a lot about Amuna and working on Amuna. Um, a summer a number of years ago where for whatever the circumstances were someone decided to send a letter to the whole community regarding me I should say the whole community I didn't get the letter so um, but they sent the letter out they sent the letter out widely and I was working on Amuna I was learning all these ideas right then and this idea saved my life because you could go into like you know an insane asylum and beating yourself up who was it not to take revenge and we have to punish them and this is horrible or you could say you know what for whatever reason, the Ribbono Shalom, I needed to learn something from this experience. And, you know, I'm not telling you if we ever found out who it was, the Shul board shouldn't uh, do something because it's not an appropriate way to communicate your issues. Um, but from the position of being driven by, I have to find out who this is and I have to take revenge, I've got to throw him out of the Shul and we're going to, you know, that was just, it's such unhealthy energy. And it's an act of heresy. Mm-hmm. It makes you believe that that yokel, that person was capable of causing you such hurt. But they're not. If God wanted, you know, the mailbox to be stolen or be swept away by the wind, not to be delivered or whatever, God could have made sure that that didn't go out, the letter. God was okay with it. This, I'm giving this as a personal example to you, um, just to tell you that this Sefer Achinach 
um, pshat and losikam lositor, this understanding of not taking revenge, is very empowering. It gives you tremendous strength and support to realize that whatever's happening in your life and however you're being treated by others, hold them accountable. Do what you have to do. But don't be consumed with negative energy or desire to avenge and those, and those types of things, right? Because you have to recognize and realize that whatever happened couldn't have happened without the will of the Ribbon Shalom. And I think that's what Yosef's telling his brothers. You know what? There's an Asura Haruge Malchus. In Shemayim, brothers, it's not so simple. You threw me in a pit. You were ready to kill me. You sold me down to Egypt. There's accountability for that. There's consequences for that. But says Yosef, in terms of my being here in Egypt, that's not because of you. That's because God orchestrated things for me to be here. Don't take credit for that. Don't think I'm going to kill you because of that. That was all orchestrated from above. Yes? When you're describing it, I feel in a way that we're kind of like puppets. Like, I want to feel like we have importance in this world and that we, when we make a decision, we make that decision. But in a way, I feel like it's all been orchestrated. So what do you tell people when they so, so it's, yeah, it's what I alluded to earlier. Not only are we not just puppets, we're the only thing that exists. First of all, in terms of you're saying, well, that person was used to hurt me, God allowed them, so that person, do they really have free will? The answer is 100% they had free will. God wanted me to experience whatever that was. It could have happened in a myriad different ways. It happened because that schnook used their free will to be a jerk. Right. They didn't have to use their free will. They could have used their free will to write a love letter to the whole community about me. They used their free will to write whatever they wrote. So the fact that God wanted me to experience that result could have happened through a million different mediums. That person's free will made them the vehicle to bring about that result. So those two things, A, are not a contradiction. But B, what, what, what the Islam Rebbe is saying, what Chazal really say with, with the, the notion that is that the only thing that exists, the only thing that exists is our free will, are the choices we make. Our height, our IQ, our athletic ability, our artistic ability, whether there'll be a hurricane, a tornado, a tsunami, who the president will be, what the foreign... Uh, every, the stock market, we don't control any of that. We don't control any of that. The only thing we control is what we do with that. What we do with our height and our IQ and our athletic and that, those free will, and that's everything. It, so on the one end, it's disempowering to think that we don't control anything. You think you are who you are. Whatever you're wearing right now, you're not wearing because you have some individualized, unique fashion. You're wearing because you live in 2017, and this is what the people you admire wear. This is what the mall sells, and this is what the fashion says. You didn't choose this life. If you lived in Poland in the 1600s, you'd be wearing a different outfit. If you lived in... I constantly go to Simchas where I see people with certain glasses or styles, and I say... Boy, in 10 years, they're going to be looking at this album saying, what was I thinking? You know? this, was the, this was the fashion, the style, right? I see that all the time, right? Wear something where in 10 years, you'll still say, like, I looked good. Not, what the heck was I thinking, right? So people all the time are giving in to some fashion. Fet. So much of our life is preordained. What family you're born into, your socioeconomic class, your intellect, your, your opportunities, your, so much of that is preordained from above. So that's very disempowering. You're left feeling like, what's the purpose of life? What's left for me? And the answer is everything. What you do with that, the choices that you make with that, the life that you build with that, who you choose to be with that. It's not disempowering. It is It's everything. That is absolutely everything. Put even stronger, God says, I created a world and I preordained and predetermined so much of your life. But there's one thing I couldn't program about you. 
And God says, even I, the omnipotent God, am impotent when it comes to programming this in you. And you know what that is? You choosing me. I can't make you choose me. Whether you know I exist, whether you lead your life according to the values that I exist, whether you, I can't make you do it. I've made all these other circumstances around you. I've preordained and predetermined so much of your life. But whether you elect to see me in your life, to live your life with me, that's left for you. And that's everything. That's everything. So is there a gray area in some things that we think are preordained that we actually can change? Is there some, do people feel they need that in their life that they can kind of move into that realm a little more? I'm not going to dunk a basketball if I spend the rest of my life trying. That's preordained, my height, my athletic ability, my DNA. There are things that are preordained that we're not going to change. We understand that in the world of, in the physical world. We get it. We have limitations. Certain things are not going to happen. Um, and I think that's true in the spiritual world as well. On the other hand, we have free will. And free will is... Opportunity. Free will is everything. It's everything. It's what we do with the cards we've been dealt. You can't change the cards you're dealt, but you can play the hand. Mm-hmm. And playing the hand is everything. Yes. Playing the hand is absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Let's just finish the paragraph. Mm-hmm. God wills all existence. God has providence over all existence. Unlike the Rambam, every, every time the wind blows, every blade of grass that dries out, every mango fruit that drops to the bottom of the tree. And the Sonam Rebbe's position or evidence building on the Baal Shem Tov's principle is if it takes God to will the existence of everything, then he's continuing to interact with everything. He didn't set anything in motion. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't disappear. He is continued interaction with everything that exists. So again, the effort, the exercise for all of us is ain't od mil vado. It's to not, on my checklist of things, I have to call this one, I have to do that one, I have to learn, I got to shop, and I have this, and I have that, and I have that. Oh, there's also God, I got to do the daven thing. It's not that he's one thing on my list. He's not another thing in existence. He is all of existence. Ain't od mil vado. He's with me everywhere I go. He's involved in everything that happens to me. He's aware of every thought that I have. He is everything. He is everything. He informs, he inspires, he guides. He is everything. Hopefully for the good, sometimes for what we perceive as the not so good, but then we'll live life with a greater sense of reliance and dependence on him. Hopefully we'll live life with a greater sense of gratitude and appreciation of him. But he's everything. Driving Palmetto, I gotta make the light. God, God, keep the light. God, keep it green, keep it green. It's just, it's, every, it's everything. It's Hashem is Ein Od Milvado. He is everything. And as we've talked about numerous times, when we live that life with that mindfulness and the sense of Enod Melvado, it's not that a life of submission all of a sudden becomes a life of burden and torture. It's liberating. And it provides Menucha Sanefesh, serenity. And it's empowering. And it is the most beautiful life that we can have. Have a great week.